Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode, did William Shakespeare, an uneducated man from Stratford, really write Hamlet, Macbeth, and Romeo and Juliet? The author of Shakespeare Suppressed makes the case that the 17th Earl of Oxford, Edward de Vere, is the true bard. Have you ordered your bottle of Carbon 60 yet? The mighty Aphrodite and I have been taking a tablespoon of this miracle molecule suspended in olive oil for a few months now. We're taking the purest form of C60. It's called ESS60, and it's produced by our friends at C60Evo.com. C60 in oil is a powerful antioxidant that moves through the body like a magnet to attract and neutralize free radicals. It can slow down aging and reduce cellular damage. C60 can improve the immune system and reduce inflammation naturally. Often we hear about improved vision and substantially keener mental focus. The mighty Aphrodite and I are sleeping much better. We're both pain-free, no joint stiffness or back pain. And that's why I call Carbon 60 the miracle molecule. It's great for us humans and it's great for our pets. To order, go to c60evo.com. That's c60evo.com slash ref slash rs1. Again, to order your bottle of ESS60, go to c60evo.com slash refrs1. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serres. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs, here's Richard Serrett. Welcome to your Wednesday. Author Catherine Chilgen is here to explain that there's something wrong with Shakespeare's biography. 
William Shakespeare is the most celebrated and most read poet and dramatist in history, but his personal life and artistic life is a mystery. How did he obtain the extensive learning and experience displayed in his works? When were his plays written and why were his works so often pirated by printers? Although publicly lauded during his lifetime, why was Shakespeare's death not noticed by those in the literary world near the time that it had occurred? These are only a few problems that the Shakespeare professor cannot answer definitively after two centuries of scholarship. Much contemporary evidence, however, is available that can shed light on many of these problems, evidence that gets ignored because it does not fit the expert's picture of Shakespeare. This evidence overwhelmingly indicates that William Shakespeare was the great author's pen name and that he was a nobleman. It shows that he wrote decades earlier than believed and initially for the private entertainment of Queen Elizabeth I and her court. Catherine Chilgen is an independent scholar who's studied the Shakespeare authorship question since 1985. She debated the subject with English professors at the Smithsonian Institution in 2003. Her book, Shakespeare Suppressed, earned her an award for distinguished scholarship at Concordia University in 2012. Children edited letters and poems of Edward, Earl of Oxford, contributed to Contested Year, and has written several articles in Oxfordian publications. Catherine Children, welcome back to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you? I'm doing great, thank you. Shakespeare suppressed the uncensored truth about Shakespeare and his works. You and I have talked before. You know, there's no spoiler alert here. Let's just jump right to the authorship question and uh, explain who the 17th Earl of Oxford, Edward de Vere, was. He was um, a, a nobleman. Edward de Vere is his name, and his title is 17th Earl of Oxford. He was from one of the oldest families in England. Most of the earls and barons of the period were like the first or the second creation. He is the 17th earl, so he's one of the oldest family and proudest family names in England. And um, it turns out that he had a great passion for poetry and the theater. And um, that's where he ended up putting a lot of his energies and we of course believe that his works are the Shakespeare plays and poems. And I'm, I'm trying to recall how we identified the other William Shakespeare who lived in Stratford. Did, did you refer to him as the Stratford man? Yes, the Stratford man. Okay, so we need to keep it clear that when we talk about the Stratford man, we're talking about the other William Shakespeare who is not likely, according to the authorship question theory, the, the, the true author of uh, the plays and the, and the poems and so forth. Correct. Yes. All right. So, the 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 Stratford man. Just give the listeners a sense of who he was and why it was most unlikely that he would have been capable of writing some of the greatest works in the English language. Yes, the Stratford man. He was a real person. He was born with the name William Shakespeare. Um, probably it was pronounced Shakespeare if you look at how it was spelled in uh, surviving documents with a short A, S-H-A-C-K-S-P-E-R, or S-H-A-X-P-E-R, Shakespeare. Um, as far as we know, uh, he hasn't had no education. Um, he was raised in an illiterate household, and um, 
the first sense of him intersecting with the theater occurred when he was in his 30s, um, where, where he was deputed to receive payment um, for an acting company. He was one of three people receiving a payment. Um, that's where it starts. And thereafter, he, we see him as a, a, a theater shareholder in two theaters, but we have no evidence that he was a writer or somebody who was educated in, in his lifetime. We don't have any lifetime evidence. Um, yes. And Edward Devere, uh, so if he took on a pseudonym, first of all, why would he have taken that pseudonym? And, and also, how common were pseudonyms uh, in the, in the Elizabeth, Elizabethan era? Yes, uh, it has been written um, that that was the golden era of pseudonyms. And a lot, a lot of people use pseudonyms, you know, for political purposes. You know, if they wrote, wrote something that was a little bit critical of the church or the government, you know, they don't want to be held accountable. So there were a lot of people using pseudonyms. The Earl of Oxford is the perfect candidate to use a pseudonym because uh, as a nobleman, he didn't want to be um, outwardly known uh, that he was working you know, writing plays and poems, or he didn't want it to be known that that was his great passion during his lifetime. So um, I think that for the most part, uh, he was writing anonymously, and later on he probably adopted the name William Shakespeare, probably alluding to his jousting career. Um, in the 1570s uh, and 1580, he, uh, he uh, was a champion of the joust in two tournaments, and he won a prize. And these were tournaments that the Queen Elizabeth um, attended. So being a spear shaker is a, a reference to jousting. So it was a very apropos uh, pen name for him. So the idea of, of writing plays, although it's a, you know, a much heralded career today, back then it would have been considered beneath a nobleman? Yes, um, beneath, beneath his dignity. So uh, he didn't want it to be known during his lifetime. Um, and people who knew that he was writing these great plays um, kind of kept quiet because of that. And, but after his death, however, it would have been all right for the Earl of Oxford to have a play printed with his name on it. Um, but that didn't happen. And that's, uh, that ha has caused the whole uh, authorship controversy. And because he was also writing about the court and there were you know thinly veiled, I suppose, references to various people in the Elizabethan court, uh, would he have been considered, uh, would that have been considered a betrayal uh, if it had been discovered that he was writing about the court? Um, it, it would have been, yes, a portrayal, but also it, um, you know, he, he was maybe uh, lampooning some of them. Uh, for example, Polonius in Hamlet, many historians see that as a, a lampooning of William Cecil Lord Burley, who was the Queen's top minister. So, uh, you know, you're playing around with powerful people, you know, poking fun at them in plays, that, that's a little dangerous. But actually, in the Earl of Oxford's case, he knew him very well. He was his father-in-law. So, um, you know, if you're going to uh, satirize somebody, uh, you can do it convincingly if you know the person. But, uh, uh, well, you mentioned Polonius. So let's, let's uh, dive in here and talk about some of the the clues in the works of Shakespeare, which point directly at Edward de Vere. And you mentioned Polonius, and there is, 
in Hamlet, Polonius making mention of young men falling out of tennis, which is kind of interesting. What is the connection there with De Vere? Yes, there's a great connection. Uh, The Earl of Oxford um, uh, wanted to play tennis, um, I believe, on a court that Sir Philip Sidney, who was another poet of the period, um, was playing on, and I think Oxford maybe, you know, told him to that he should leave, and um, it, it, you know, they had a little uh, contretemps there on the tennis court, and um, it it became known, and uh, to the point where Sidney challenged Oxford to a duel, um, and then the Queen got involved, and you know, said, no, you you two are not going to do any dueling. Um, so I mean, right there, that's a that's a perfect um, allusion to the Earl of Oxford. There's many others in Hamlet. Right, right. Of course, the uh, the one that jumps out immediately also is the, um, uh, the the pirate incident, where Hamlet is is captured by uh, by pirates on his way back to England. Uh, how does that connect to to? Yeah, Demare? that's again a perfect parallel with the Earl of Oxford. He uh, did a grand tour of Europe. About a year and a half, he was gone, and on his way home crossing the English Channel back to England, uh, his his ship was uh, attacked by pirates uh, and he lost most of his possessions. So um, it's, it's a, a perfect parallel. Another one is the line in Hamlet, I am but mad north, northwest. Uh, again, nobody understand, no, no, no scholar really understands what that line means, meaning it's something personal to the great author. And here here it is, the Earl of Oxford, in the, in the 1580s, he invested um, in a voyage to the Northwest Passage to find the, the Northwest Passage, which was like a route to China or something. And um, that particular voyage uh, ended up in nothing. So he lost uh, around 3,000 pounds. So it, it would have great meaning to him. Uh, and and didn't he borrow those three thousand pounds from someone who who bore a kind of a, an uncanny resemblance to the Shylock character? Yes, um, it was uh, his last name. The, the one he borrowed from was L O K Locke. So uh, Shylock, uh, there you go. <laughs> Shy could be uh, another word for shady. So shady Locke. Right. Right. Um, Shakespeare is uh, he drew on a number of different you know sources for his inspiration, but you know chief among them being the Bible. But the other one was uh, something called Ovid's Metamorphosis, uh, and and there again there is a connection between the seventeenth Earl of Oxford and and that work Ovid's Metamorphosis. Can you explain that? Um, yes, the Earl of Oxford um, when he was a teenager. Uh, his tutor was Arthur Golding, who was a, a well-known Latin scholar. And uh, Arthur Golding uh, tr- mostly translated biblical works or religious works, but kind of uh, out of the blue, he translated Ovid's Metamorphosis. And uh, at the same time, he was tutoring the Earl of Oxford. So we, we tend to think that the Earl of Oxford may have even um, helped with the translation uh, because it involved verses um, with, you know, the gods and goddesses and, you know, the classical mythology, and it, which must have captivated uh, the Earl of Oxford. 
and we know the Earl of Oxford uh, very much loved writing verses at, at that young age. Mike, it, it almost seems like such an obvious open and shut case, doesn't it? It does. That's why it's just, to me, it still baffles me why uh, Shakespeare professors to this day just will not even touch the topic uh, of it being somebody else. Well, let's let's go a little further for those still not convinced. Um, uh, where does the, uh, the great to be or not to be soliloquy come from? Do we know? Um, I, I believe it's from um, a book called Cardenas Comfort. And um, that was a book that um, the Earl of Oxford, I believe he helped sponsor um, a translation. There again, there we go. We mentioned, we mentioned the Bible uh, as being such an influential uh, source. And uh, uh, De Vere, Edward De Vere, uh, he was kind of famous for, for making notation. He had like a Geneva Bible or something. Um, any clues there in his notations in the Bible that, that might connect him with Shakespeare's works? Yes, um, Professor Roger Strittmatter, his uh, PhD thesis was on a particular uh, book of uh, the Geneva Bible that it's now in the Folger Shakespeare Library. And it's the Earl of Oxford's book. We know it because um, it has his family seal on it, which is a, a boar. And there are hundreds of underlinings and notations in this book. And uh, Professor Stripmatter um, found correspondences to the underlying passages with passages in the Shakespeare plays. Um, and the, the Folger also owns, two, uh, I believe, two other books that was owned by the Earl of Oxford. Uh, we, we know that he had interest in books. And, and as far as uh, the, the vast amount of book learning that he had can be accounted for because he lived in the household of Lord Burley, who had an enormous library. How many, how many languages uh, did the Earl speak? Um, well, he, he certainly spoke Spanish and French. I mean, not Spanish, uh, Italian and French. Um, and he also knew Latin, because we have, we have evidence of this. So I would say at least, you know, three or four languages, maybe more. And obviously traveled abroad extensively because, uh, you know, and a lot of time in Italy, spent a lot of time in Italy. Uh, was Shakespeare the, 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 the Stratford man? Uh, was he a traveler? As far as we know, uh, there's no evidence he ever left the country. Um, and, you know, <laughs> you, you did need a, a passport back, or, you know, license to leave. Um, and it's not like uh, we know that he was a soldier and he was sent abroad. No, there, there's no, absolutely no evidence of that at all. And yet, if you look at the plays, um, like, for example, in Romeo and Juliet, um, the opening lines talk about sycamore trees outside of the, of the castle walls, and the western wall of Verona. Uh, that is not a, a well-known uh, characteristic of Italy. It's a very, very minor detail. And yet, Sure enough, if you go there today, there are sycamore trees on the Western Wall. So that's just a tiny detail, but uh, he was deeply, uh, there's many, many Italian references to particular places, and a great book uh, detailing them is Richard Rose, The Shakespeare Guide to Italy. And, and uh, did Edward de Vere have a home in Verona? No, 
he didn't, but we know he visited um, throughout Italy, um, you know, based on our research and also uh, where he sent, you know, wrote letters from. What about similarities between Oxford's life and uh, characters in the play King Lear? Well, right off the bat, (laughs) uh, the Earl of Oxford, he had three daughters, just like King Lear. Um, And, you know, in the opening of King Lear, he's dividing the kingdom between his three daughters. Um, You know, he asks them, how much do you love me? You know, and he'll (laughs) give a corresponding share based on that. But um, uh, the Earl of Oxford uh, in the 1590s, uh, he he was in reduced circumstances as far as income. And uh, for some reason, he had to, to, to give his family estate, the castle Headingham, um, to his daughters. He had to make it over to his daughters. So he was kind of, um, his family seat was in, in essence taken away from him, even though he was still the Earl. So he, in a way he gave his kingdom away in that sense. Uh, one of the reasons I'm having you back, aside from just enjoying speaking with you, is that, that this year marks the 100th anniversary of uh, Thomas Looney's uh, book, Shakespeare Identified. And is, I guess that's kind of ground zero when we're talking about the authorship question, correct? Oh, yes. Well, um, as far as the Oxford theory, yes. He, he, the uh, authorship question had been written about since the 1850s. And it was mostly uh, people who thought it was Sir Francis Bacon who was the great author, which made sense in some levels. Um, but it was Loney who really uh, fingered the, the real man um, based on kind of a scientific method of figuring out who, who he had to be. He, he came from rather humble beginnings. Tell me about him. Um, you know, I, I don't know 100% his background. I believe he's from northern England. Um, he w- worked as a, a schoolmaster who taught Shakespeare plays, you know, over and over to his students. And he, you know, he, he came up with, you know, he was getting a real sense of familiarity with the great author through his works. And obviously at some point he became aware of the authorship question and he couldn't uh, match the, the great genius uh, behind the plays with the known biography of the Stratford man. It just seemed like a huge disconnect. You know, before uh, Loney came along, uh, you mentioned that the authorship question rested with Sir Francis Bacon. What changed or what did Loney know that caused him to switch from Bacon to uh, the Earl of Oxford? Do we know? Well, he made a profile of the great author based on his works. And uh, he, he was certain that this was a nobleman, um, somebody of high aristocracy. Um, he was had to be somebody who was mis- kind of mysterious and eccentric. I mean, these are his Loney's words, somebody who was unconventional, um, somebody who was a known poet, um, but yet his works are not known, somebody of a, of a great classical education, um, a lover of music, enthusiast of Italy, um, somebody who knew about noble sports. All of these had to be characteristics. And they don't, didn't quite match Sir Francis Bacon, I, I would say. Um, but um, what, what his method was is to 
search for somebody who wrote in a similar rhyme scheme as uh, the great author did in Venus and Adonis, which is like six lines stanzas. And he, he looked through an anthology of 16th century writers, and he only found actually two that wrote it with that same type of rhyme scheme. One, one of them was anonymous, and the other one was the Earl of Oxford. So when he went to the Dictionary National Biography, uh, you know, an, encyclo an encyclopedia, and he read the Earl of Oxford's story, it, it just fulfilled all the requirements that he had made before he even knew who was the Earl of Oxford. And so that really, you know, that set him off and probably inspired his book. More of my conversation with Catherine Chilgen when Conspiracy Unlimited returns. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. There's so much more than tea at getthetea.com. Take, for example, Astaxanthin Max, the most potent antioxidant blend in the world. Astaxanthin is able to cross the blood-brain barrier and the blood-retinal barrier and concentrate in the retinal macula. Astaxanthin is up to 550 times stronger than vitamin E and 10 times more potent than beta-carotene. With its unique blend of astaxanthin, vitamin C, bilberry leaf, tomato extract, and vitamin B12, astaxanthin max is quickly becoming the eye healthcare supplement of choice. Get your bottle of astaxanthin max at getthetea.com. And don't forget to use the code UNLIMITED on all your orders. Then you don't pay for shipping. Astaxanthin max for your eyes at getthetea.com. Theoretical physicists say that there's as many as 12 hyperdimensions. Here are just three of them. Conspiracy Unlimited. Conspiracy Unlimited. Conspiracy Unlimited. Pretty cool, huh? Uh, here's an extra one. Conspiracy Unlimited. Hey, how about one more? Conspiracy Unlimited. And the great thing is we have six hyperdimensions left. Conspiracy Unlimited. Five. Catherine Chilgen, the author of Shakespeare's Suppressed, is here. That poem, Venus and Adonis, that's based on a painting, I believe, that also resides in, in Italy, doesn't it? Yes. There's an extraordinary um, connection uh, between Shakespeare's poem and Venus and Adonis. And uh, Venus and Adonis, a very famous painting, was painted by the, the artist Titian. And um, he made several versions. And... Um, among the five versions, uh, only one of them had Adonis wearing a hat, <laughs> uh, like a hunting hat. And um, that is how Shakespeare identifies Adonis as somebody wearing a hat. He, called, he used the term a bonnet. Um, beyond showing the central action of the painting, which is um, Venus kind of trying to grab hold of Adonis and, and get him to stop going hunting. 
Um, so that was, again, another theme that was peculiar to Titian in his painting and to Shakespeare in his poem, because um, the goddess, the love goddess Venus, tries to seduce Adonis in Shakespeare's poem, but he is disdainful. He, he puts it off. He'd rather go hunting. Um, so there's a perfect parallel that the great author had to have seen that picture by Titian. Um, to have written so accurately about it. Did, did Thomas Loney travel to Italy to try and maybe connect some dots? I don't believe he did, no. Um, I think he just, you know, did his research in England, where he's from, of course. Right. And, but, yeah. And, you know, we're, we're familiar with what kind of, what kind of pushback uh, authors like yourself are getting today uh, on the authorship question from official academia. How was Loney's book received 100 years ago? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, it, it, was, uh, it was put out by a respectable uh, publisher, uh, Cecil Palmer, and it did get quite a few book reviews, but it, the English departments, the English professors, I think just sort of ignored it. I mean, they obviously they didn't accept it. Otherwise, there wouldn't be you know the question still today. Um, but it did gain. He did gain many followers. Um, some famous, for example, um, Sigmund Freud. Um, he was a great believer. And um, I even found a letter of um, Einstein to his his son. Um, saying that he was very excited and that he wanted to read all, the, all as much about Shakespeare as he could. And I'm wondering if it's because of Freud, because they did correspond with each other. Hmm. Um, but, um, yeah, it, 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 right, right off the bat, a society was formed uh, for people who believed in, in Oxford, the Earl of Oxford. And there's been various societies over the decades, you know, come and gone. Um, today, the big one is um, the Shakespeare Oxford Fellowship, who, who, who this year we're celebrating, you know, the 100th anniversary of, the, of Shakespeare Identified, which is Looney's book. Right. So, I mean, in some respects, nothing has changed in the last 100 years in terms of the recalcitrance or the stubbornness of uh, official academia, if I can use that term, to the authorship question. Yes, it's, it's really tragic. They, they, they even, um, like, for example, the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust, which is kind of the bastion of, of Shakespeare in, um, in England, um, they, they wouldn't even accept a 40,000-pound donation to debate the authorship question, to prove their case that the great author was a Stratford man. Uh, that, to me, tells me that they can't prove their case, and that's very true. They can't. So if they can't, you know, why why don't they want to investigate it and get to the bottom of it? You know, that to me, it's really baffles me. Well, yeah, I mean, why why do you suppose they resist? I mean, and and what does that say about the state of higher learning and 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 research and and so forth? If 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 they won't budge on this, what else are we being lied to about? One has to wonder. Mm, yeah. I- I, I'm not an authority to say so. I don't know. But yeah, I mean, it, it could spread across many disciplines. But what is it about this this subject in particular? Because this is the one, of course, most near and dear to you. Why why do you think it is that they are so, they don't even want to debate it? 
they, I mean, they have here and there. They have, um, but um, for the most part, no. They they don't want to talk about it, and um, they usually don't talk about it to their students. Um, and I, I would just say they just don't want to upset the the status quo. Um, I guess you know if it was proved that he was the Earl of Oxford, uh, it would invalidate a lot of their you know PhD theses, their articles, their books, all of that would sort of be invalidated, which, you know, I I would think that would be bad, you know, tragic in, in some cases too. somebody spending their whole life on Shakespeare and not not having it right, not having the right man. So so that could be part of it. Um, or perhaps they're ignorant of, you know, their own case for their own man that, that they don't, maybe they don't realize there's no lifetime evidence that he wrote the works. It's all posthumous evidence. How much uh, of it might have to do with the fact that we all love the underdog story and the idea that someone coming from humble beginnings who could, you know, who signed his name with an X would then grow, you know, later (laughs) be responsible for all these great works. Yeah, I mean, that, you know, that's, to me, it's a very romantic concept. And yet they, they come back at us and say, we that that it's a romantic concept to think that only a nobleman could write these works. Um, I think it's romantic the other way. Um, if you look at the works, uh, how filled with knowledge and uh, of all sorts of topics, um, it, it just couldn't be any ordinary man who who, who wrote these. <laughs> he had to have been somebody who uh, had its superlative education and. That we have records of the period of people who attended law school and Oxford University, Cambridge. We have all those records. There's no William Shakespeare in there. He's he's off the charts. So the um, you know the vitriol uh, that, that's out there. I mean, there are there, there are these two camps. Uh, do you do you feel that? Or do you experience that? I mean, you have colleagues, obviously, perhaps in the, that are entrenched in the other camp. Does it get personal? Does it get nasty? Um, it hasn't to me. It, it hasn't to me. It's just a, people just, I mean, the the uh, professors don't really acknowledge me because I'm not a professor. Um, but I think it affects, it, it can affect some of our uh, people who, um, who are academics, who, not in English departments, but who are academics who try to publish, it, it could affect them. Um, I've, I've heard of such things. I just wanted to share, you, you, you might be familiar, you're probably familiar with this passage. I wanted to share this with listeners, though. Uh, this, again, coming back to Thomas Loney, this comes from a website called oxfraud.com. And uh, it's a, it's a their biography, if you will, of Loney. They write, a J. Thomas Loney, born into a humble background and was a school teacher in the not very stylish and remote, highly unfashionable town of Gateshead, a savage cultural wasteland in the icy northeast of England. And we're talking about today. 100 years ago, graduates were measures for whiskey in Gateshead. There's no proof there were any books at all north of the River Tees in 1899 when young Loney went into exile in the even smaller community of Low Fell, like Will's own, not a promising background for a world beater, you might think. Boy, they're really taking a shot at the late Thomas Loney. 
That's terrible. Wow. I, I, I'm not familiar with that. I, yeah, that's that's really terrible. <laughs> the Let's just give um, a little, not equal time exactly, but let's just talk about some of the the points that the those opposed to the um, Edward DeVere theory uh, offer up. And it, most of it really centers on the timeline because Shakespeare was born 1564, died 1616. The Earl of Oxford died uh, or was born in 1550, but he died in 1604. And they say, aha, there's a problem because um, many of the, 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 the great plays of Shakespeare uh, appear to have been published after Ed, the Earl of Oxford's death in 1604, like um, uh, Macbeth, like King Lear, Henry VIII, The Tempest, uh, Anthony and Cleopatra, uh, some of the great sonnets, Sonnet 18, all published supposedly after the Earl of Oxford's death. So how do you uh, respond to that? There's, uh, that's a big one. Um, I think that they like that be, because the Earl of Oxford died in 1604. The, uh, the timeline of the, the chronology of the Shakespeare plays that is currently in use is very inexact. And actually, um, it, there is no exact evidence for when any Shakespeare play was written, a composition date. They don't know after se several hundred years. In fact, that's something that got me, you know, really curious before I even knew about the authorship question. I, I saw a chronological list of plays, the Shakespeare plays, and next to every date was a question mark. And I thought, gee, after 200 years of scholarship, they still don't know when Hamlet was written. You know, they just have approximates. So really, that is, it's not a valid point because they, they, can't, they don't know when it would any of the works were written. And, uh, you know, they, they're very fond of uh, attributing the Tempest to a certain uh, shipwreck uh, that happened in 1609 or something like that. Well, there were many shipwrecks back then. Um, it, you know, it, it didn't have to be that particular shipwreck, but they, they grabbed a hold on that because it's uh, it post-dated, you know, Oxford's life. So, um, yeah, I, I would... The, the dating is really a sore spot with them because they're, they're incapable of figuring it uh, to paralleling it with the Stratford man's life because we, we have very little events in the Stratford man's life that you can uh, match it against. No, nothing, nothing fits his life story. So um, they basically try to squeeze uh, 40 or so plays in like a 23 year period. And it just, it doesn't work. Is it possible to also that, that some of those plays penned by the Earl may have been uh, published posthumously? Um, yes. I mean, they were, they were published after he died. Yes. Um, well, only 16 of the, the plays were published um, uh, before 1623. Um, the rest, about 20, were, were published with the first folio in 1623. So, um, yeah. And, and when you look at the, the, the works that, that uh, were, were supposedly published after the Earl of Oxford's death, and I mentioned... Uh, 
uh, Macbeth and King Lear and, and Anthony and Cleopatra and so forth, uh, do you see again in, in, in any of those parallels to the Earl's life that just point directly at him? Um. I mean, evidence, let's say, for, let's talk about, let's say, uh, um, I don't know, um, well, we, we mentioned King Lear. We talked about he had three daughters. King Lear had three daughters. Uh, wh what about with uh, with Macbeth? Any any parallels with Macbeth and Edward's life? I don't know offhand, um, but it you know it was a very bloody play, a very dark play, and it could have been written you know after you know one of the many um, you know dark moments <laughs> that he had in his life. He was also very interested in. Uh, a kind of occult and uh, topics and you know he may have explored it through that interesting but, and yeah. and and sonnet 18 which um uh, shall i compare thee to a summer's day you know one of the greatest poems ever written perhaps uh, yeah. and that supposedly was published the critics say after the oxford's death anything in in sonnet 18 stand out to you that again points at points to the uh, to the earl um, you know what, I, I'd have to read it again, um, but uh, the Sonnet 18 is really, it, it's directed toward the fair youth who was the Earl of Southampton, and Southampton um, was at one point um, meant to be engaged to the Earl of Oxford's daughter, Elizabeth. Aha! <laughs> so there we have a connection. Yeah. Fantastic. Um Catherine, what's next for you in this uh, in this arena? The authorship question. Are you uh, are you working on another book? Yes, I am, and um, I, I'm not ready to talk about it right now. But it also it involves the art world and Shakespeare, so I think it could be uh, pretty popular once it gets out. Fantastic. All right, and how do we get a copy of Shakespeare Suppressed: The Uncensored Truth About Shakespeare and His Works? Um, it's uh, available on Amazon and also uh, through my website, shakespearesuppressed.com. And what about the anthologies, uh, dedication letters to the Earl of Oxford and letters and poems, also available at the website? Uh, the dedication letters um, are, is not available, but uh, yes, the letters and poems of uh, Edward de Vere, the Earl of Oxford, yes, is available on my website. Fantastic. Catherine, always a delight. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Okay, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'll be back in just a moment to reveal a few details about an upcoming episode. She's our full script dispensary manager and a nutritional therapist. Welcome back, Colleen Forgas. How are you? Great, Richard. So many people are having sleep issues. It's an epidemic, a national epidemic. What do we have at the full script dispensary for people who have trouble getting to sleep? The product I want to recommend today is called Insomnitol. It's by Designs for Health, and it includes GABA, which is something that we have discussed on previous conversations, also valerian root, passion flower, chamomile, melatonin. So these products are all designed to help calm the body and ensure a good night's sleep. Terrific. Insomnitol. To order, all you need to do is go to strangeplanet.ca, then click on the full script dispensary button. 
Once there, just register. And remember, all orders receive 10% off, and orders of $50 or more ship for free. These products have not been evaluated by the FDA and are not intended to treat, diagnose, or cure. If you have a medical concern, please consult your health care provider. Coming up next time on Conspiracy Unlimited, the author of the Time Tunnel series of books discusses time travel, parallel universes, and the butterfly effect. Wormholes connect black holes in different uh, space-time. And so, uh, in theory, if it were possible to uh, travel through a singularity and not be shredded to bits, you uh, might well appear in a different space-time that pop out on the, on the other end. Of course, there, there's some obvious practical issues associated with that, but that really took me off in a direction of the relationship of, of time and space and uh, did a fair amount of research into gravitational time dilation. Uh, just one simple example of that regards GPS satellites. So the idea is that uh, the time experienced in a satellite flying above the Earth is slightly different than the way that we perceive time on the planet. And if you don't correct for that, then you'll find yourself uh, driving into a ditch instead of reaching your Starbucks. Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting.